Welcome to the BJA Education Podcast. So hello and welcome to the March 2017 edition of the BJA Education Podcast. I'm Benj Marriage. And I'm Cliff Shelton. This month, Cliff went to speak to Jeremy Campbell to discuss his article entitled The Future of General Anesthesia in Obstetrics, which is published in this month's March 2017 edition of BJA Education. So today I'm here with Dr Jeremy Campbell, who is a consultant anaesthetist at Queen Charlotte's Hospital, which is part of Imperial Trust in London. So Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so your article starts by pointing out that uh, the rapid sequence induction hasn't changed much since it was first described. But in view of more recent findings from NAP5 and the Embrace report, some controversies in this topic have emerged that we'll discuss today. So to start with, could you please outline the main points from those two reports and how they relate to your article, please? So the NAP5 report, uh, which is the fifth national audit project, uh, investigated accidental awareness under general anaesthesia. Um, and this confirmed what we always believed to be the case, uh, that general anaesthesia in obstetrics is a high-risk area for awareness. Just to put that into context, uh, in the report, Obstetric cases represented only 0.8% of the total number of general anaesthetics performed, but they accounted for 10% of the cases of awareness. The overall risk of awareness in the report was 1 in 19,000, but for general anaesthesia and obstetrics, that was 1 in 1,200, and for a general anaesthetic specifically for a caesarean section, it was as high as one in 670. So clearly some, some things going on, on here, which I know we're going to discuss shortly. And the other report was the Embrace report, which is the report of the Confidential Inquiry into Maternal Deaths, which was published around the same time. And one of the findings in this report, in the anaesthetic chapter, was that in some of the maternal deaths, the dose of thiopentone that had been used for induction of anaesthesia in severely ill women seemed rather excessive and might have contributed to hemodynamic instability. Now, obviously, that could represent poor recognition of the sick um, obstetric patient, but it might also be uh, that anaesthetists, particularly junior anaesthetists, are becoming unfamiliar with the use of thiopentone. And it's opened up the debate as to whether thiopentone should still be used as the induction agent of choice in obstetrics. So clearly there's some specific concerns there, uh, both about the risk that we're taking on in terms of uh, awareness and maybe using an induction agent that we're not uh, as familiar with as we used to be. And your article goes on to mention what you describe as a perfect storm for accidental awareness under general anaesthesia. Can you talk about what you mean by this, please? Well, the NAP5 report highlighted several risk factors for awareness. And it just so happens that many of these risk factors are present in the obstetric patient, creating the perfect storm for awareness in the obstetric patient. Uh, so, for example, awareness is more likely to occur in patients who are obese, in patients presenting to a non-consultant anaesthetist as an emergency during out-of-hours periods. Uh, it's more likely to occur if the patient is having a rapid sequence induction, in which the anaesthetist uses thiopentone as the induction agent, with which he or she may be less familiar uh, with than propofol. 
in which opioids are omitted at induction and in patients who may then be difficult to intubate. Mm. Now, all of these factors can potentially be present in the obstetric patient. And I think this is uh, part of the reason why uh, we see a higher incidence of awareness uh, in general anaesthesia in obstetrics compared uh, with other areas. I, I would refer our listeners to take a look at table one in your paper where this perfect storm is um, classified and illustrated. Now, just to pick up on the um, thiopentone versus propofol point, there seems to be quite a debate in various institutions, certainly in which I've worked, about whether thiopentone still has a place in obstetrics. Um, What's your view on this? Well, thiopentone is still the most popular induction agent for general anaesthesia uh, in obstetrics in the United Kingdom, but its um, use is increasingly rare, I think, outside obstetrics. And I think as a consequence, um, some anaesthetists, particularly junior anaesthetists, are becoming increasingly unfamiliar with it. And this was highlighted in the NAP5 report, which showed that in half of the cases of awareness in obstetric GAs, the dose of thiopentone which had been given was considered to be rather low, less than four milligrams per kilogram. And the authors highlighted that in fact, a dose of five milligrams per kilogram should be given. Now, conversely, We've also seen, as I've already mentioned, in the maternal mortality report that in some of the maternal deaths, the dose of thiopentone was was thought to be excessive. So it, it does raise the question as to whether we're becoming a little bit less familiar with the use of thiopentone. There are some other issues with thiopentone. It takes some time to draw up with water. Uh, it looks like antibiotic, so there's a risk of a syringe swap uh, in a cesarean section with obvious consequences. Uh, And thiopentone is a little bit more expensive than propofol as well. And all of this has opened up the debate about whether we should be uh, replacing thiopentone with propofol as the induction agent of choice uh, in obstetrics. So the focus of the NAP5 report was accidental awareness under general anaesthesia. And um, your paper suggests that consent for general anaesthetic in the Uh, obstetric context should reflect this uh, increased risk in that setting. Can you put this into context please? That's right because um, obstetrics is a high risk area for awareness the NAP5 authors, one of their recommendations was that we should be uh, including a discussion of awareness with the mother uh, as part of the consenting process for general anaesthesia for cesarean section but clearly in a, in a category one cesarean section where there are very significant time pressures, that's quite difficult to achieve. Um, but it has been suggested that there should maybe just be a, a brief comment to the woman about cricoid pressure mm. and a brief description uh, that she may be aware of sensations during induction of anaesthesia, but to reassure her that it will be brief and that the anaesthetist will be there throughout. So you mentioned there about um, uh, awareness of cricoid and maybe sensations kind of early on in the um, in the process. And this relates to what you describe as the gap in your article. Could you talk about um, what you mean by that? Most of the cases of awareness that occur are thought to be of short duration, just a few seconds. And most were thought to occur at or shortly after induction of anaesthesia. Uh, And that coincides with a period of time when the 
bolus of intravenous induction agent is wearing off and the partial pressure volatile agent is increasing. And this creates a potential gap in anaesthesia when the patient may be light and when awareness may occur. And we can call this the IV inhalation interval. Um, and um, I think in my article there's a, there's a graph which shows uh, this potential gap in anaesthesia. Uh, and the NAP5 authors uh, said that as anaesthetists we should be minding the gap uh, to try and reduce the chances of awareness. Now this gap is particularly important in obstetrics for several reasons. First of all, we are still predominantly using thiopentone for induction and as we've already discussed, uh, thiopentone is often given in a dose that's a little bit too low. Secondly, we uh, traditionally avoid opioids at induction because of concerns about effects on the neonate uh, and that uh, can also increase the gap. Obstetric patients are more likely to have a difficult airway and any extra time taken to manage this airway will result in a delay in delivery of the volatile agent which will increase the duration of that gap. The other thing to mention is that in a category 1 caesarean section there is a very short duration of time between induction of anaesthesia and the skin incision. So maximum surgical stimulation can occur right in the middle of that of that gap when the patient is a bit light. Uh, and the final thing to say is that uh, in pregnancy uh, there is an increased cardiac output. At term uh, the cardiac output is increased by 50% compared to the non-pregnant state and any increase in cardiac output will tend to decrease uh, the duration of action of the bolus of induction agent and will also prolong the time taken to increase the partial pressure volatile agent. So that brings us on to volatile anaesthesia in the obstetric setting. Clearly that's the other half of the, the gap that we haven't talked about. What would be your recommendations for practice here? Well in the past anaesthetists were taught to administer light anaesthesia in obstetrics because of concerns about effects on the baby. Uh, and, uh, and anaesthetists were taught to use a MACA volatile agent of about 0.5 mm. so as to minimise neonatal sedation and also to minimise blood loss from reduced uterine tone. But of course doing that is going to increase that IV inhalational gap and increase the chance of awareness. And uh, I'm not aware of any evidence that actually using a higher MAC is indeed associated with increased neonatal sedation. Nowadays, we do stress the importance of achieving an adequate end tidal volatile level as soon as possible, and that can be done by using a high initial concentration of volatile agent combined with high fresh gas flows. And if, when we're using those high concentrations of volatile agents, we do get some extra bleeding from, from a decrease in uterine tone, then we should simply manage that with uterotonics in the usual way. From what you've um, described, achieving a, um, an adequate concentration of volatile at the effect site quickly, um, I mean, desflurane would seem to be a, an ideal agent. Is that what you use in your practice? We personally use uh, sevoflurane, but uh, there's no reason not to use desflurane. And what about the role of nitrous oxide? So nitrous oxide is quite a useful uh, gas to be added to the gas mixture. In fact, in obstetrics, it's one of the few areas where I still do use nitrous. 
The advantage of nitrous is it means that the anaesthetist can reduce the concentration of volatile agent whilst maintaining an adequate MAC. Um, and um, nitrous oxide itself does not have any effect on uterine tone. The thing we haven't mentioned yet are um, opioids. Where do they fit into this GAP context? And um, what's your recommendation from a pragmatic point of view on their use? Well, traditionally, opioids have been avoided at induction in obstetrics uh, because of concerns that opioids cross the placenta and can cause neonatal respiratory depression. Uh, but also because if we give an opioid before induction, then it may delay the return of spontaneous ventilation in the mother uh, if there's a failed intubation and if there's a decision that she's going to be woken up. However, uh, if, an in, if, if an opioid is given um, at induction, it could potentially reduce the IV inhalational gap uh, and reduce the chances of awareness. In addition, it would provide useful analgesia uh, for airway instrumentation and to cover the initial skin incision, which are the two most stimulating parts of the caesarean section. My own practice uh, is not to use opioids routinely at induction. Uh, I think at the moment more research is needed to define which is the best opioid to use at what time and in what dose. Mm. And in the contexts where you do use opioids, what are, what are your opioids of choice? So the situations in which I would use opioids would be, for example, a general anaesthetic uh, in a patient with severe preeclampsia. Mm. Um, and my, my practice is to give a dose of alfentanil, a milligram of alfentanil. In that situation, I always let the neonatologists know that I've given it uh, so that they're aware that there's a possibility the baby uh, may have respiratory depression. In terms of muscle relaxants, um, I think all of our listeners will be aware that sort of analogous to that um, uh, propofol thiopentone debate, there's also been a succimethonium rocuronium debate ongoing. And um, however, many institutions might be limited by financial constraints regarding the use of Sagamidex should it be required. What are you doing at your institution and do you think we should be using uh, rocuronium plus or minus Sagamidex? We are still using succimethonium as our muscle relaxant of choice uh, because we're familiar with it uh, and despite its side effects it does do the job well. It provides good intubating conditions provided that an adequate dose is given. And One of the points I mention in the article is that the recommended dose of succimethonium is 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. So a 100 milligram ampoule of succimethonium will provide an adequate dose for a woman weighing up to about 70 kilograms. Um, but we have to remember we're seeing more and more obese parturients and I think it's sensible always to have a second ampoule of succimethonium available so that the dose can be increased if necessary. Because the risk is that if you give an inadequate dose of sucks, you'll produce suboptimal intubating conditions and your intubation will be more difficult. Regarding rocuronium, we have used rocuronium in the past. Uh, it should be given at a rapid sequence induction dose of 1.2 milligrams per kilogram. And this has been shown to provide comparable intubating conditions to succimethonium. And Rocuronium also has the advantage over succimethonium in that if intubation proves to be difficult, it won't start wearing off by the time you're having subsequent attempts at intubation, which will then make your intubation more difficult. 
I think the argument for using rocuronium has been greatly strengthened by the availability of Sogamidex. But if it is to reverse a 1.2 milligram per kilogram dose of rocuronium, it has to be given at a dose of 16 milligrams per kilogram, which is quite a high dose. Um, but it has been shown that in that dose, it will um, produce a return of neuromuscular function faster than the spontaneous offset of sexamethonium. Now, I do stress 16 milligrams per kilogram is a large dose um, for an average 60, 70 kilogram mother, that's going to be about a thousand milligrams. Um, our vials of Sugamidex come in two mil vials containing 200 milligrams each. So you would have to draw up five vials of Sugamidex uh, to provide an adequate dose. And that's obviously going to take a little bit of time. And the time taken to do that should be taken into account as part of a plan for a failed intubation. One could draw it up in advance, just in case it's needed, but remember it is a very expensive drug. So I guess at this point the pragmatic solution is um, regarding the team brief prior to um, commencing induction of anaesthesia and make sure that it's somebody's job to, um, to draw the Sugamidex up should it be needed. Absolutely. So your article uh, moves on from this debate to failed intubation or the difficult airway in obstetrics. This is classically taught as, um, as, a, as a source of concern in obstetric general anaesthesia. But what are the actual numbers and what are some of the things we should be doing to optimise our first attempt at laryngoscopy? The incidence of failed intubation in obstetrics is 1 in 300 to 1 in 400. So roughly 10 times higher than in the non-pregnant population. And fairly recently, the Obstetric Anaesthetists Association and the Difficult Airway Society published quite comprehensive guidelines on the management of difficult and failed tracheal intubation uh, in obstetrics, uh, which we, I would strongly recommend people who work in obstetrics read. Um, I don't want to go over the full details of this guideline because it's, it's, it's quite a large guideline, but there are a few things I just want to pick up uh, from it that I think are important to mention. The first thing is about, about uh, positioning. In order to optimise our first attempt at intubation, it's really important that the patient is in, is in the optimum position. And the best position for the patient to be in is in the head elevated or ramped position, uh, in which the external auditory meatus is in the same horizontal line as the suprasternal notch. This position is good because it makes all aspects of airway management easier. Uh, for example, it's easier to apply cricoid pressure, it's easier to insert the laryngoscope, it's easier to mask ventilate the patient, it's easier to get front of neck access. This is particularly important for the obese patient uh, in whom intubation may be more difficult. Now, the, this uh, position can be achieved with pillows, but there are also specific devices on the market available uh, to help you achieve it. For example, the Oxford pillow, and I know many labour wards will have one of these available. We have one in our department, and I use it whenever I have an obese uh, person coming to theatre uh, in obstetrics, even if she has a working regional block, just in case I have to convert to a general anaesthetic. There are a couple of other things I want to um, highlight from the guidelines. Pre-oxygenation, uh, as part of our rapid sequence induction, sh should be done as normal. But remember that pre-oxygenation should also continue after the induction agent has been given, but before laryngoscopy occurs, i.e. during the period of time when the muscle relaxant 
is working. And this should be done by holding the face mask tightly on the face uh, and holding the airway open because even though the patient's apneic, there will still be bulk flow of oxygen to the alveoli, so-called apneic oxygenation. And also we can further improve our pre-oxygenation technique by giving the patient five litres per minute of oxygen via nasal cannulae at the same time. And this will also enable bulk flow of oxygen uh, to occur during airway manipulation. And all of these techniques hopefully will increase the time to hypoxemia if the airway is difficult to manage. Thank you. And I know that some institutions are even going above that five litres per minute using, for example, Thrive or high flow nasal specs. Is that something that you've had experience of? Or? I haven't had experience of Thrive myself, mm-hmm. uh, but I've certainly used the, uh, the uh, nasal cannulae with five litres per minute. Uh, just, just one other thing I want to mention from the uh, guideline as well. Uh, is about cricoid pressure. We're of course going to use cricoid pressure as part of our rapid sequence, but remember that cricoid pressure, if it's applied poorly, can distort laryngeal anatomy and can make intubation uh, and mask ventilation more difficult. So if there is any difficulty with intubation or mask ventilation, don't be afraid to reduce or remove cricoid pressure. Towards the end of your uh, paper, you um, uh, discuss a little bit about Uh, consultant and trainee involvement in these cases Uh, and make the point that some institutions maybe only do one obstetric general anaesthetic per week or maybe Mm. even less. Mm. Uh, Could you comment about training and about what you think the role of the consultant cover is in obstetrics? Over the last 20 or 30 years there has been a big fall in the proportion of caesarean sections done under general anaesthetic. Uh, I think think now it's about 8% of caesarean sections are done under GA. Uh, And as you say, some units may have only one GA per week. Uh, Most GAs are done as emergencies. And the confidential inquiry into maternal deaths continues to record a small number of deaths from hypoventilation associated with general anaesthesia. Because GAs are now relatively infrequent, it's really important that anaesthetists maintain their skills by practicing drills, for example, uh, failed intubation drills. You have to remember that most GAs are performed by trainees, uh, often in a location of the hospital which is remote from the main operating theatres and usually out of hours with distant consultant supervision. Trainee anaesthetists are probably less experienced with obstetric GAs compared with in the past because we do them less frequently, as I mentioned, but also because of reduction in junior doctors' working hours. And I suspect this, uh, together with other reasons, may strengthen the argument for increased presence of consultants uh, on labour wards during out-of-hours periods. Uh, And I believe this is already happening in some centres. Finally, then, could you give us any take-home messages uh, about this topic? I think, first of all, we should get rid of the thought that we should be providing light anaesthesia to our patients in obstetrics because of concerns about the baby or bleeding. We should be making sure that the patient is asleep. Uh, I think it's likely in the years to come that propofol is going to be used increasingly and thiopentone less. If we're using succinamethonium, we should make sure always that we're using an adequate dose uh, and we should consider the rocuronium sugamidex combination. Uh, and I would, I would recommend to anybody who works on labour ward to have a read of the OAA 
and DAS guidelines on difficult and failed intubation in obstetrics because they're very well written, they're comprehensive and very useful. Should we all just grasp the nettle and use propofol and rocuronium for these cases? I don't think we're there yet. I think we'll still be using thio and sucks for some time. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. So thanks to Jeremy and Cliff for that discussion. I think that our listeners will find that to be a useful update of the current state of play and a comprehensive overview of the directions that obstetric general anaesthesia may take in the future. Join us next month when Dr David Chambers will be discussing his article on Parkinson's disease. And remember you can follow us on Twitter at BJA Journals. Thank you for listening to the BJA Education Podcast.